Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father and our God, um, You are our shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. And we are the sheep of Your pasture. And we have gathered here as your people this morning to hear from you, our good shepherd, because you lead us to places of safety. You lead us to places of provision. In your presence is abundant life. In your presence is where we find honor. And uh, that one day we will know that in all of that in its fullness. But today we are here as a foretaste of that to experience what life will be one day when your kingdom is established in its fullness, when heaven and earth have been renewed. Father, I pray that this morning uh, your spirit would find fertile soil in our hearts from, for your word so that it may bear fruit in us that witnesses that Jesus Christ is Lord so that even through our lives and our testimonies you'll be pleased to draw people to yourself, uh, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation so that they too may join that great, great group of worshipers that one day will gather from every people, tribe, and tongue. We look forward to, the day, to that day. And meanwhile, Father, we look to your work in our lives today, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We continue in our series in the book of Psalms for uh, the summer, just uh, about seven to eight weeks. Uh, We saw Psalm 16 and Psalm 20, and this week we are in probably what's everybody's favorite psalm, Psalm 23. Uh, Raise your hands if you have memorized Psalm 23, not just memorized once, don't remember anymore, but memorize and still remember today. Yeah. Very good. It's, uh, there are many of you do that. And who's willing to stand and recite Psalm 23 from your memory? We ask our kids to do that, you know, memory verse recitation. So why not adults? Nancy, go for it. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, we don't want Wigglies. Go, go for it, sir. God knows the Wigglies. Somebody join her. Amen, you're dismissed. No. <laughs> uh, I heard a lot of A's and thou's. We all know what version you memorize. 
So, um, many of you knew this psalm by, psalm by heart. Uh, when do you find yourself, uh, or what circumstances in life do you find yourself reciting the psalm? When you're in trouble. Yeah. When you're afraid. <laughs> the last thing you say before you go down. <laughs> yes, uh, Psalm 23 is probably the, the most well-known and, um, and, and very popular. It's found its way to the movies where children pray this prayer over dead pets and uh, uh, even made it a gangster rap. Uh, Coolio included it in the song Gangster Paradise. Uh, you find this on hospital room. Uh, one of my friends from school, I had asked him about Jesus, and he said, yes, I believe in Jesus. I said, how did you know about Jesus? He said, this Psalm 23 was in the dorm room wall, and I used to recite that every night before he went to, before he went to bed. So this is a psalm that is popular both among people of faith and people who have no faith in the God that they are confessing in this psalm. Um, if 1 Corinthians 13 is a staple for all kinds of weddings, uh, Psalm 23 is the staple for funerals. Uh, because as much as uh, people want to catch a glimpse of love at weddings, they want to capture a glimpse of hope at funerals. And Psalm 23 is the go-to psalm for that. Uh, for me, the most uh, poignant use of the psalm was in a book by a Holocaust survivor. Named, uh, his pen name is George Salton. Well, actually, that's the name that was given to him when he came to the U.S. His name is Salzman, a Polish Jew. I, I wept through sections of that book, uh, the hardships that he endured, the horrendous treatment that they received. Uh, the book is entitled The 23rd Psalm, A Holocaust Memoir. And he tells us why he named it as such. He said, for my memoir, I chose the title The 23rd Psalm because I lived the words of David's psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. These words were and are still my prayer today. The 23rd Psalm is something that meant something to me after I survived the camps. I did believe in God. I did hope God would have mercy to help us. And I did wonder if God had forgotten us. But after the war, especially when the, the passage about the shadow of death, I felt that David who wrote the Psalm must have also gone through some terrible experience. I wanted to acknowledge the Psalm had special emotional meaning for me. The setting of the psalm is one of crisis, uh, but it's not, we do not know whether it's a crisis that has already passed or that it's a present moment of crisis or, or a crisis that is in the future. The, the crisis itself is not specified. Uh, so what the psalm does is provides us as, uh, this cry to God uh, that's applicable to any situation of crisis. Because life is full of crisis in this fallen world. Uh, but it is crisis that evokes the greatest expressions of trust in us. When we, life is going well, uh, we take it for granted and keep going. But when crisis comes in whatever form, uh, we cry out to God with the words of this psalm, as I do many times when my, uh, if I have trouble sleeping or this past week with my moving, when everything that could possibly go wrong seemed to go wrong. But in the midst of it, I saw God's goodness. In the midst of it, I kept telling myself, the Lord is my shepherd. The psalm is a confession of confidence. It's a confession of trust in God. It's, it's, a, it's a commitment to this God. Uh, it, 
it, it's, it's best probably expressed as what this psalm actually is, a prayer. Uh, but psalms also teach. It in, they instruct us. So this morning, uh, while we can just recite it and go home, we need to look at the details to, to, to know what it is that we are reciting when we recite the psalm. This psalm, as of all of scripture, is formative. It forms us according to what it says. So it doesn't say what we mean, but actually helps us to become what we mean. Uh, uh, or, or come to be what it says that we are. We see a, a movement in the psalm from uh, where David speaks of, speaks of God in verses 1 to 3, and then speaks to God in verses 4 through 5, and then returns to speaking of God in verse 6. We look at it in five parts, starting with verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. A psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, the superscription is part of scripture. This is a psalm of David. Sometimes scholars wonder uh, whether David actually wrote that psalm or not, but there's no question about this psalm. David must have written it. As you look at this psalm and, and you look at the narratives concerning David, it's very clear that uh, there are many times in the life of David where he could have written this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The very first word of the psalm is Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the rest of the psalm is an exposition of what that line means. God is the subject of all but two of the verbs in this uh, psalm. David first and continues to say something about who God is, and then something about himself in light of who God is to him. He says something positive about God and something negative about himself. In the ancient Near East, a shepherd is also the image, a metaphor used of kings and leaders. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 4, for example, we read both pictures where God is the good shepherd, the king, the good king, and his earthly rulers, even some that he raised up, end up not being good shepherds at all. Even we heard that read in the scripture reading this morning that... Jennifer read for us. We read in, in Jeremiah 23, 1 to 4, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them, and who will care for them, and they shall not fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither, dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. God himself refers to himself as a shepherd. He is uh, the, the, the true king, the true shepherd of Israel, and he appoints under shepherds of which David is one. This is a psalm of God's provision, a psalm of God's protection, a psalm of God's guidance. See, that's what shepherds were supposed to do. They were, they were responsible for the sheep. Uh, they do for the sheep what the sheep can't do for themselves. It's, a, it's an enduring image through all of scriptures, even starting from Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob calls on God, uh, speaks of God as the shepherd. We see it in the Psalms. Uh, psalm 100 verse 3, for example, uh, we read, that great declaration of how God is our shepherd. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His 
pasture. Same thing in Micah chapter 7 verse 14. Uh, the people cry out to God, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. That imagery continued even as the people were facing through exile when the prophet Isaiah uh, comforts them. He, God, will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The Lord is Israel's shepherd. The Lord is Israel's king. And for David to write that, David acknowledges that the true king of Israel is Yahweh. And he is only an under-shepherd. Uh, the psalm also recalls the, the wilderness wandering for, uh, of Israel when God was their shepherd who guided them and, and brought them into the promised land and provided for all their needs. So what shepherds do, God has done for Israel. God has done for, uh, for David. Psalm 23 is a, is a confession of trust and, and a commitment to the God who is the shepherd of Israel. And because God is that, the, the psalmist has something to say about himself. And he says, I shall not want. Uh, we, we are used to that translation, I shall not want. Uh, but it's a misleading word. The, the, the right translation probably is, uh, I shall not lack. I think the NIV captures it well when he says, I shall not be in want. Or, uh, uh, so when we speak of, I shall not want, uh, we may think of it as like, I, I, I won't desire anything. I won't want anything. That's not what this psalm is saying. This psalm is saying, I will not lack anything. Uh, that anything that I need, God is going to provide. See, shepherds know what sheep need. Sheep can desire all kinds of things. But the shepherd knows what, knows what they need. And he leads them to those things that he needs. Uh, they need. I shall not lack. It's, a, it's an absolute statement. I shall not lack. He doesn't say, what is it that he doesn't lack? He does not lack. But he doesn't leave it to the reader for us to think of what is it that we do not lack because the psalm goes on to speak of what is it that the Lord does for him that will keep him from uh, lacking anything. See, God had provided for Israel in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 7, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have lacked Nothing. They have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, yet Moses could say, you have lacked nothing. They could have pointed out a lot of things that they lacked. But God had taken care of them. In Psalm 34, verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Jeremiah in his, uh, uh, Nehemiah, sorry, uh, Nehemiah in his uh, psalm, uh, in his uh, prayer of confession, says the same thing that Moses did. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. They didn't have to go out and buy new shoes. Nike and others would have been out of business. God is the good shepherd, and because he is the good shepherd, those who seek him, those who trust in him, will lack nothing. So what is it that God does that the shepherd does not uh, lack anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Why doesn't he lack any good thing? Verse 2 to 3 speak of four things the shepherd does for the sheep, what the sheep can't do for themselves. 
he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. See, shepherds, they were caring for these sheep in wilderness where grass and, waters, grass and water are in short supply. Uh, sheep don't know where the grass is. They don't know where the water is. They have to trust the shepherd. And it's the shepherd who knows where the green pastures are. He is the one who knows where the safe waters are, waters that don't threaten the sheep because sheep get spooked easily. The needs of the sheep are met. It's a picture of God as the provider, and God is the provider of abundant life. So when we think of abundant life, we, we think of it as having whatever we want, but uh, when scriptures speak of abundant life, it's not a life of indulgence, but a provision of basic, need, basic needs of life. That's why when the Lord teaches us to pray, he, prays, he asks us to pray for, give us this day our daily bread. That's what we are asked for. And when we receive that, we know that we have received from His abundance. He restores my soul. Uh, God refreshes. God renews. That's also an enduring idea of the scriptures. To, to find rest is uh, something we find with God alone. To find restoration, refreshment, we need to turn to God. And we are told that he does all of this. Uh, before we get there, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. Uh, given the context of a shepherd and a sheep, uh, probably the better translation is, he, he leads me in the right paths. He gets you to where you need to go to find what you need, where your needs are met. Uh, but this is not just about sheep and shepherds. It's about God and his people. So there's this moral overtone as well. Uh, he leads you in the paths of righteousness. See, we are supposed to know what is right uh, from what God tells us is right. That's why the warning in the garden that they shall not eat of the knowledge of the, the tree of good and evil because knowledge of, the, uh, knowledge of good and evil is something we receive from God, not we decide for us, ourselves at what is, what is good and what is right. Uh, and we see what has happened when we decided that we would do for ourselves. Uh, and we call evil good and we call good evil. And he does it all for his name's sake. This is the great comfort of this psalm. It's not because of who you are or who the sheep are. It's because of his own name's sake. See, God had revealed his name to Israel even when Moses went out uh, to Egypt being sent by God. He asked God, who should I say sent me? And God says, uh, uh, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent me. See, to know somebody's name is a privilege. No other nation knew the name of God who is the creator of all things besides Israel. Israel had this intimate covenantal relationship with God that, uh, that they knew God by name. And God says he does all of this for his name's sake. Uh, there are two nuances here. One is the idea of reputation and the other is the idea of character. See, God's name speaks of his character. Uh, uh, so God does everything for his name's sake. That is, he would do according to his character. He will never violate who he is. Whatever he does is good. Whatever he does is just. Whatever his, uh, he does is merciful. Whatever he does is holy. Uh, whatever he does is righteous. But it is also a matter of reputation. Some of you... I know I have. I've heard your parents say, don't drag the family's name in mud. Uh, uh, so the, the, to say that God does something for his name's sake is that he has taken his reputation in, in, in what he has done. See, these two nuances come to play when uh, Moses leads God's people out in the wilderness. 
when uh, Moses goes up to receive the commandments, uh, the people indulge in this idol worship of the golden calf, and God declares that uh, he was going to destroy them all and start over with Moses. And Moses pleads with God to spare his people, and he pleads with God uh, for God's namesake, and he pleads on the basis of God's reputation. Uh, he says, uh, the Egyptians would say that God took them out of the wilderness to destroy them, not to worship him, as you said. And then in that same uh, uh, Exodus 32 to 34, Moses dares to ask, even as we sang, reveal your glory. Who are we to ask that? Uh, but Moses does, and God obliges, and that's why we sing. Uh, and God reveals himself according to his character. His glory is that he is a God who is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger. So next time God destroys, threatens to destroy God's people is when um, they refuse to go into the promised land. They listen to, the, to the, the ten spies who gave this bad report and, and God says, I will destroy them and I'll start again with Moses. But Moses this time pleads not because of God's reputation but because of God's character. Because Moses knew that God has revealed his character so that it could be the basis for their plea before God. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. God is a God who is slow to anger. And that became the cry for Israel. Whenever they needed God to be merciful to them, they would appeal on the basis of God's name. But what sometimes they forgot was that God was merciful and compassionate, just not just toward them, but even to their enemies. So Jonah tells them, Jonah tells God, the reason I ran away is because I know you are a compassionate and merciful God who is slow to anger. They wanted, he, he wanted God's compassion and mercy for himself, but not for his enemies. I wonder if we are any different. God does all these things for his name's sake. We keep reading, he, God keeps us secure. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. To be, to be led by God into pleasant places like we saw before, uh, green pastures and, uh, and still waters, does not mean that life does not involve dangers and crisis. Uh, we need both provision and protection and often at the same time. We love that phrase, we love the valley of the shadow of death. Actually, the, the Hebrew is a superlative term, a, 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 a compound term, which actually means something like uh, shadowiest of shadows, as someone says it. Uh, the darkest shadows. It could definitely mean death, but it's not limited to just times when we are threatened with death, but through all dark valleys that we walk through. And um, this is where the psalmist stops talking about God and starts talking to God. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, David knows by experience the presence and protection of God as a shepherd, as a king in waiting when he was fleeing Saul, as a, as, as a king in battle leading uh, God's people, in, in fleeing from his son Absalom. He's walked through dark valleys and he has found God's presence to be his comfort. That's why he does not lack anything. I will fear no evil. Again, that's better translated as I will... Uh, I will not fear evil. When we say, I will fear no evil, the emphasis seems to be on evil, but the emphasis is on the psalmist. I will not fear evil. Why? You are with me. And because God is with him, he fears God. And because he fears God, he does not have to fear evil. For you are with me. Now that's the center of the psalm. Uh, both literarily, if you look at the psalm, it stands in the middle. I've, you are with me. And that's the theological center of not just the psalm of all of scripture. 
God with us. See, we, uh, we were not created to be by ourselves. We were created to be with God. And because He is with us and because we fear Him, uh, we have safety. Fear not, I am with you, is, reported, is repeated over and over and over in the scriptures. God says this to the patriarchs, to Abraham in Genesis 15, to Jacob in Genesis 26. God uh, says that to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and then to Joshua. And even as we saw in Isaiah 41, even uh, Israel facing uh, exile has the assurance that God is with them. And God has his rod and his staff by which the person in danger is comforted. Rod and, and staff were tools of shepherding. The, the staff was the long pole with which the shepherd would guide the sheep to walk in the right path. And the staff was a mace-like uh, a stick with a, uh, with a thick end that would used to, could be used to attack uh, beasts or anything that would uh, cause harm or danger to the, to the sheep. He is the good shepherd who secures their life. He's also the good shepherd who blesses his sheep, blesses the psalmist here, David, uh, with honor. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The image of God's protection continues on, but in a different setting. Uh, some say that the image shifts from God as shepherd to God, uh, to God as the host of a banquet. But in both senses, it speaks of a relationship. God's fellowship with his people always included food. In the Garden of Eden, uh, where there were all the trees that provided them food, God walked with them in the garden. When Moses and the elders went up to the mountain to meet with God, they ate in the presence of God. In the temple, a lot of their fellowship offerings were offerings that they would uh, bring and eat together in the presence of God. God feeds his people in the wilderness. And here, God feeds David in the presence of his enemies. See, when your enemies are out and they're threatening you, that's not a time when you sit down and eat. <laughs> but God honors David in the presence of his enemies. Uh, if you remember from Exodus, there were cities of refuge where if someone uh, innocently shed blood, they could flee, flee into the cities of refuge or even to the temple and, and seize the horns of the altar and they would be protected till the chief priests would die and, and then the, the blood avengers would, would have to leave them alone. Uh, Joab and uh, Adonijah do that. Uh, maybe it is in that sense that the, so David has sought refuge. Uh, there was no temple at this time in the, uh, in the tabernacle and, uh, and God's protection is with him. God invites his people to table fellowship. That's a place of honor. And that's a place of public honor because while his enemies are threatening him, uh, God honors him. Uh, our children know what it means to sit in a table where you are honored. Uh, when you go to your school lunch and you don't find a place in, at a table because no one wants to sit with you or wants you to sit with them, um, you feel the pain. I remember my daughter when we had uh, come back from uh, India and we were headed to the Philippines. Uh, she was in, uh, in high school for a couple of uh, years and when she, she came in the middle of the year she didn't know anybody and so she couldn't sit with, sit with anybody for lunch and being an introvert she would go outside and sit and eat lunch by herself till about five or six girls from the church that we were part of found her and came and joined her uh, for lunch, and uh, that's part of her redemption story. God honors 
by anointing David with oil. That's what hosts do for guests. Remember Jesus in the house of Simon the leper, where the, the woman would anoint his feet with tears and wipe them with, his, with her hair. And Simon, all, she could, all he could think of was, does he know who she is? But Jesus says, uh, Simon, you're my host. But you didn't even provide water for my hands. You didn't honor me. But here God honors David. God not only honors him with, the, with this anointing, but also with this abundant provision. His cup overflows. God's supply is not meager, but in abundance. But ultimately, this is not about food, but it's with the communion with God, enjoying the hospitality of God. Uh, God honors his people with abundance of hospitality. And he does so publicly. Today, we are not known for who we are as the children of God, but one day it will be revealed. And all of earth will see that we belong to God. We are honored by God. Again, not for who we are, but because of his namesake and for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. He gives me a place in his house. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are the favorite lines. Uh, you see, usually who is it that uh, pursues the psalmist in most of the psalms, especially the lament psalms? His enemies, they are the, the enemies are the ones who are always pursuing the, the psalmist. But here it's God's goodness and mercy that pursue him. Yes, pursue is a better translation than follows. Follows is a mild word. It's God's mercy and God, that's the word for loving kindness. God's chesed, God's goodness chases after David. God chooses us, chases after us. And somebody said, God knows where you live, so he will find you with this goodness and this mercy. If our enemies tell, you, tell us, I know where you live, that's a threat. But when God tells you, I know where you live, we know that his mercy and his goodness will find us. And it's not just in the times of walking through valleys of dark shadows, but for all the days of his life. The goodness and the loving kindness of God endures forever. So dwelling in the house of God is an enduring theme of uh, Psalms in the scriptures. It's an image of safety. It's an image of protection. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's finding refuge in God from all that would seek to harm us. But it's more than just protection. It's also an image of flourishing, experiencing the goodness of God, delighting in God's abundant provision. Uh, we read in Psalm 52 verse 8, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. It's also reveling in, in God's honor, in, 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 in honoring us and providing a place in his house. But most importantly, uh, it's an it's a opportunity to revel in the presence of God. God is the main attraction in his house. We read in Psalm 27, verses 4 and 5, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that, I will, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To do what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to, require, and to inquire in his temple. So the beauty of the Lord is his character. His goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his love, his grace. Uh, and you can never get enough of it. And he says, I could, if I could only dwell in the house of the Lord, so I could gaze at his beauty uh, forever. So it's not just an escape from the presence of enemies, but an escape into the presence of God. It, uh, see, life was always meant to be lived in, in God's presence with immediate access to God. That's what Eden was. That's what the tabernacle was. That's what the temple was. And 
Today we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. So God is present to us. Wherever we are, wherever we go, God is with us. And one day, when Christ returns and all things are made new, we will dwell with God forever. And to dwell with God is to have life, because God is the source of life. Psalm 36, how priceless is your unfailing love, for with you is the fountain of life. So to dwell in the house of God is to enjoy the essence of life. That's what happened in Eden. In Eden, to be in fellowship with God was to be in fellowship with the one who is the source of life. To be sent out from Eden was to lose access, to lose fellowship with the one who is the source of life, and that is to die. And God brings us back to himself to give us life, eternal life, in his presence, in his house. You know, when um, I signed a lease for the house that we moved into, uh, I was one of the least conditioned was that if I have a guest, they could only stay for three weeks after that, I had to report to the landlord. Not so with the Lord. <laughs> I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as his guest. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus, as we heard read in, in uh, John chapter 10, uh, he is the good shepherd. Do you remember that story from our Mark series in Mark chapter 6? Uh, when Jesus comes upon this crowd and, and he has compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he makes them sit down on green grass. And he provides them with an abundance of food. Jesus is the one who gives us refreshment. Jesus is the one who gives us rest. He tells us in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one who, who protects us from the dark valleys, from the ultimate enemies of death and sin. They, they came through Adam, but through, through Christ, who, who, who rose victorious over death and the devil, we enjoy his protection, even though sin and death are still present. But we know in Christ we share his victory. One of my friends uh, is facing a cancer battle, and... Uh, and he said this when he first heard the news. Uh, this is the word in 1 Peter 1.13. Uh, we're told, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. Nothing, nothing, nothing else. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the one who is honored in the presence of his enemies. His enemies thought they were dishonoring him, putting it to shame. But it was his victory on the cross, ultimately vindicated in his resurrection. He humbled himself and obeyed even to point of death on the cross. But God highly exalted him. And it is Jesus who invites us to his table, to which we will come in just a moment. He has gone to prepare a place with, for us so that we will dwell in that place that he has prepared for us. We eat at his table now, and we will feast in his presence when he returns. That's the table that we are going to come to anticipates that day when we will feast with him in his presence, and when we will dwell in his house forever. What does it mean to enter into God's rest? Genesis speaks of God's rest. It doesn't mean that God was tired and he took a day off. No, God's work was done. Creation was complete. Uh, there's a sense of wholeness, uh, uh, completion. Uh, and, and 
that's the rest that, into which God calls us to. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that the people of God did not enter into that rest because they did not trust him. See, we live in a world where we definitely see we lack rest. Uh, there's all kinds of striving in this world. Uh, but in the midst of that, we do get glimpses of the rest to which God has called us and already provides for us, even now, as we walk through these valleys of life. There's an already to the rest, and there's also this great not yet, but it already gives us a glimpse of the not yet that is to come. Do you see inward transformation in yourself, where you're no longer the, the person you used to be? Uh, that's a sign of the rest that is to come. When you see love for God and love for neighbor uh, in yourself and others, that's a sign of the rest that is to come, where our relationships are, are, are characterized by love and not by self-centeredness or, self, or selfishness. When we see the self-giving nature uh, uh, in us and others, we, see the, we get a glimpse of the rest which that will be complete when, when Christ returns. When we see uh, us and others extending, uh, receiving forgiveness from one another, that's a, a sense of the rest into which God is bringing us, where we will no longer bear the guilt. Uh, it will be completely taken away. We live in a broken world, but the kingdom of God has broken into this world. Because Christ came into this world, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And now those who are his, we who are his people are those who bring a taste of that kingdom to this world. The world will know that Christ has come uh, as, as we, through our lives, demonstrate our trust, the rest that we have in him in the midst of life's crisis. A person that's modeled this for me is uh, the, uh, the man who discipled me. Some of you may know him, Otis Anderson. He passed away a long time ago, 20 years almost. Uh, but Otis, uh, Otis was dying of uh, lung cancer. Uh, I went and visited him in his, uh, his, his hospital floor for terminally ill patients. He was so full of joy. He was a, the most joyful person in the whole floor. And that gave him such a great opportunity for witness in that, in that setting where death was present. The dark shadows were there. But all they could see was the joy of Otis because his joy didn't come from the circumstances of life but from the God who gives him rest. And he was entering into the fullness of that rest. What does it mean to feast at God's table? It's a picture of God's abundant provision. It's a picture of safety in relationship with God. We remain in the presence of enemies. They come in various forms. Our own fears, our guilt, our shame, our anger, the troubles and the cares and the pain and the sufferings and dangers of this world. Uh, but in the midst of this, God has spread out a table for us that reminds us of that feast when the kingdom comes in. Uh, this table that we're going to come to in just a moment is a reminder of that. But even in other places where we see the rebuilding of broken lives, where we come into a, a gathering like this, where you're warmly welcomed as a brother and sister in Christ, where we love one another and care for one another sacrificially, all of these are a foretaste of the feasting that is to come. When we see forgiveness and reconciliation instead of vengeance and vindication, that's a foretaste of that feast that is to come. When we will all sit together and feast at God's table. And even that dwelling in God's house that we wait for it in its fullness, we still can experience God's presence now. Uh, some people want, go off to places of splendor like mountaintops and uh, and uh, 
to beaches to ex experience God's splendor. But, but you can see God's beauty, God's presence in so many things that are still good in this world. The beautiful sunsets that I used to enjoy from Roosevelt Island across the city. Uh, I tell people that, uh, you know, I enjoy God's splendor not by going to the mountain, but by looking at little skyscrapers in New York. These are God's image bearers who built this. Uh, and they speak of God's greatness. Obviously, um, there are other places where we see God. See, God's dwelling place is a place where God is present. So we need to ask, where is God present? Obviously, He is present when we are gathered for worship. That's why Hebrews 10.25 tells us, do not forsake the assembly of believers, because uh, there's one place where you're sure to meet with God is here, with one another. When you come here, you bring Christ with you, and we bring... Uh, when we see the person next to you, it's a person whom Christ dwells through the Spirit. He's with us. Here's a place where what it, uh, we, we catch a glimpse of what it means to live under the sovereignty of God. Uh, here's a place where um, we see the presence of God in our joys and in our sorrows as we hear the testimonies of our brothers and our sisters as what God has done for them. We don't find that outside in a world that is in opposition to God. So worship gives a foretaste of the future when all shall be worshipped because the very presence of sin will be removed. Even now we are told to even eating and drinking can be the glory of God when the very presence of sin is removed. Uh, uh, the eternal life is an eternal life of worship not because we are all going to be sitting together hearing sermons and singing praises. Uh, no, everything we do will be to the praise of God. We await that day but we catch a glimpse of that when we gather like this. But God is also present in the margins of society. God is present where he is at work. God is on the street with the homeless. These are his image bearers. God is at the borders with migrants. When we join him in serving all those who are in need, in loving people, in caring for the poor, the suffering, when we seek justice and equity and, and compassion, and when we are generous, Whatever is lovely and pure, God is present. And, and when we participate in those things, we participate in the presence of God. See, we are, we are present with God when we bring love and caring and joy and restoration and forgiveness uh, and salvation and hope to God's creation. We have Jesus' promise that when we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that He has commanded us to do, we dwell with Him because He is with us even unto the end of the ages. So God is with us while we await the day when we shall dwell in the house of Zion. This song, um, I think uh, Charlie taught us this when, we were, when he was here. Um, I love this song because it provides this great segue from Psalm 23 to, to the Lord's table. Uh, it's a uh, it speaks of this meal as an anticipation. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. We will not be burned by fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. In the dark of night before the dawn, my soul, be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh, how long? O God of Jacob, be my strength. Every vow be broken and betrayed. You are the faithful one. And from the garden to the grave, bind us together. Bring shalom. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shall not lack. And a glimpse of that abundant provision of God is at this table. This is the Lord's table. He prepares a table for us. So he invites all those who belong to him to this table. So this morning, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to this table. But if you have not, if you have not trusted in Christ, we ask that you refrain from this table, not because we don't want you here, but because this table belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Without that relationship with him, uh, this table is not for you. So we invite you instead to put your trust in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and he rose, and he rose again. If you do that, you have God's promise that your sins are paid for. And you have new life as God's children, as God's family. And you too can be welcome at this table. Scripture tells us that the first time they observed this meal, they gave thanks to God. So let's do that. Our Father and our God, you have invited us to your table where we, as your children, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, have partaken of this bread and this cup that represents him whose body was broken for our sins, whose blood was shed for us, and that we are now united to him as your children, so that you look upon us as those who are in him. And Father, as those who have been placed in him, you, called us, you call us to live like him by the power of your spirit. So Father, having received from you, I pray that we would be faithful to share that with others, that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness, that in, in Jesus Christ there is new life, that in Jesus Christ there is, relation, there is relationship with you forever. I pray that you would help us to be bold and courageous and loving witnesses, for we ask in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212 212- Nine seven five zero one seven zero. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.